My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And boy, we have a total FOMO Sapiens on the show today. Somebody who's going to talk about his path, his journey, which has been completely unique. And it's a great example of one of my favorite things to talk about, which is unexpected entrepreneurship. And my guest today is Reza Aslan. And if you don't know Reza, he is a leading expert in world religions. He's also a renowned writer, professor, and an Emmy and Peabody-nominated producer. He's the author of three internationally best-selling books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And his producing credits include, get a load of this, the acclaimed HBO series, The Leftovers. Reza is the host and executive producer of two other original TV programs, Rough Draft with Reza Aslan on Topic and CNN's documentary series, Believer. And he's also the co-host of the podcast, Metaphysical Milkshake. That, my friends, is a title. He is also out with a new book called An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville, which we will talk about at the end because it's a cool story. But the reason I wanted to have Reza on the show is because I followed his career. I had actually met him a gazillion years ago at this fundraiser, which, you know, first three seconds and I was like, I love your work. And he was like, thank you. And then I never saw him again. And I followed his career and he just has done all this very interesting stuff. He even had a whole like sort of cancellation thing that happened when he spoke out about some political stuff and his show on CNN was canceled. So that also was something that I remember happening and thinking, well, that's pretty terrible. And so we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today, but we're going to first talk about how you go from, you know, he's gone from a scholar in the classroom to, you know, the boardroom. And it's a very unusual path and it has lessons for all of us who want to be entrepreneurs. We're also going to talk about how to figure out things you don't know, get people to help you, and how to not get distracted by the bright, shiny objects. You might know that as FOMO, right? (laughs) And finally, we're going to talk about what happened when he got canceled and what he learned and his reactions, which is really interesting too. And he was happy to talk about it. I was a little nervous. I was sort of like, do you mind if we talk about this? And he was more than happy to talk about it. Actually, he talks about it pretty aggressively. I thought it was really interesting how straight up he was. So absolutely great interview with a fantastic, brilliant mind. You're going to love it. Now, it's that time of year. The holidays are coming. And my smallest this week is to go to FOMOSapiens.com and check out the merch. If you haven't got that coffee mug, that sweatshirt, that beautiful baseball cap, you're going to check that out this week. And you're going to buy one because I promise you, you put that in the stocking or around the menorah or whatever you're celebrating and people will love it. All right, (laughs) go check it out. At least check it out. And now on to the interview. As you know, I like to ask the same question to start every interview. And of course, I did not spare Reza. So the question I started with was this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? The decision not to be um, imprisoned by academia. 
You know, I love school. I love learning. That's why I just kept getting degree after degree after degree. It's why I'm a full-time professor right now. It's because if it were up to me, I would just kind of stay in school forever. And apparently when you become a professor, that's exactly what they pay you for. They pay you to, to think out loud in front of students and then force them to memorize your thoughts and regurgitate them back to you for a grade. That's, that's the best job in the world. That's not a real job, you know. But Academia can be a real prison, man. Um, you know, you're only really allowed to speak to each other if you, for goodness sake, achieve any measure of popular success. Well, then that's it. You know, you're you're not a serious thinker. Uh, you don't really belong. You, I mean, academia is the only, uh, uh, you know, industry that I can think of where you get punished for success. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, from a very, very uh, early point in my academic career, I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to play this game. I just wasn't going to play it. Um, that I had things that I wanted to say to a broad audience and I knew how to do it. I knew how to take very complex ideas um, things that I found interesting, so I assumed other people would find them interesting too, if only I could figure out a way to communicate it to them in an accessible and entertaining way. And that's pretty much been the key to my success for the last two decades or, or so. Um, and yes, I still get a lot of crap from academia, as you can imagine. Uh, but, uh, you know, it doesn't bother me that much. That much. I, I don't want to pretend that it doesn't bother me at all. It bothers me a little bit when people shit on my scholarly work because it took me 20 years <laughs> to get here. But, uh, but you know, I, I'm much happier speaking to a broad public than I am to like six people who, uh, you know, we all speak our own private, secret, academic language that nobody else understands or cares to understand, frankly. What do you think is, I, I, let me tell you what I think is happening. It's like, and uh, I mean, sorry for all the academics listening because I, I love you all. And I wanted to be one of you at some point or another, but then I was really bad at econometrics. So that ended. But it's sort of like, <laughs> I've had friends who've written books for Oxford University Press and like these really amazing, and they write like a 400 page book about an esoteric element of Ugandan history. And then they sell 137 copies. And well, so that's then- a big hit. Right. And that is, that's like, woo. and then you have Reza shows up, writes a book that also is grounded in, you know, real academic work, but people are, you know, snapping it up off the shelves and you're on CNN. You're not on like the Oxford Uni University Press live stream. And I have to just think it's resentment. It's what I like to call FOMO a little bit. It's for sure. FOMO. It's like classic FOMO. No question about it. Well, look, my, I published my first book, Nogaba God, in 2005, which became a massive international hit before I had finished my PhD. So I would have to go back to the classroom and sit, you know, across from professors uh, with, you know, a massive international best-selling book in my pocket. And like a silly, silly young person, I just assumed that I would be praised and that uh, the university would say, wow, look at look at this. You know, one of our students has achieved this enormous success. That's good for us. We should elevate him and, and celebrate him. And the exact opposite was true. It got so bad. 
that I, I, well, frankly, I was going to say I almost left. I did leave. I actually went to my department and I said, you know what? I don't need this anymore. Uh, I'm just, I'm just going to walk away from this. Thankfully, one of my advisors sat me down and said, uh, you're so close. You'll regret this for the rest of your life. Let's just put our heads down and let's get this thing done. Walk out of here with that PhD. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll be the right decision. And he was right. He absolutely was correct. And I, and I went ahead and, and finished it. But, you know, there's this old saying, I guess it's attributed to Henry Kissinger. I don't, I'm not sure if that's true yet, but it's something about like, the politics of academia are so cutthroat because the stakes are so small. <laughs> and that's absolutely the case. You were talking about that, that, that person who publishes something on Oxford University Press. Well, here's the problem, is that Oxford University Press, when they receive that manuscript, they do something called peer review, which means that they send it to similar scholars around the world to get their thoughts on it. <laughs> These similar scholars have no reason whatsoever to support this book at all. There are six people who are working on these Acadian vowel markings, you know, on the planet. And one of them published a book on Oxford University Press. Well, I'll show you, you know, well, that person didn't mention me or didn't mention my work and blah, 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 blah. And so it's not just that these books don't have an audience. It's that they get sort of just bogged down with so much methodology and information and useless stuff because it has to appeal, you know, it has to get past the gatekeepers. Um, and I think that's really what it is. It, but but uh, if I were to just sum it up in a single word, FOMO would be that word. All right. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. We talk about on this show, the concept of the unexpected entrepreneur. And that's the person that is doing one thing. Like I had a guest, the founder of a company called Barabee, which you may have heard of. It's these weighted blankets. And they're, by the way, like I use mine. Oh yeah, they're amazing. (laughs) So Catherine came on the show. She was an economist at the World Bank and she discovered that like, she couldn't sleep when she got home because her sleep schedule was messed up and she got she started investigating and you know fast forward and she's got this amazing company unexpected entrepreneur because nobody thinks an economist of all people is going to be a risk taker mm-hmm. same with you know yourself so you've gone out and you've been an entrepreneur you've built a bunch of media properties i just want to get into some of this like but before we do like tell us how did you get the confidence to say like you know what i'm going to start just doing entrepreneurial projects in media. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it starts with first and foremost, 
wanting to be a storyteller. I mean, I I wanted to be a storyteller since I knew what being something was. You know, that's all I ever wanted to mm. be. I wanted to be a writer. I am an immigrant, of course, uh, from Iran. My family left Iran, came here with absolutely nothing. And I grew up in, you know, pretty uh, impoverished circumstances. And so when I said to my mother, hey, I think I want to be a writer, she said, who's stopping you from writing? You go be a doctor and then you go write. Like, that's it. And I said, no, 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 mom, I want to be a writer. I want that to be my job. And she said, that's not a job. Like, that's not, writing is not a job. Writing is something you do after work. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, that that immigrant mentality made me realize that, look, I, if I'm going to, if I want to tell stories for a living, I want to uh, be a kind of industry, you know, in, in and of myself. And by the way, when I say stories, I, want, I, I think it's important to, for people to understand that all of life is storytelling. Religion is just storytelling. Politics is just storytelling. You know, stories are how we understand ourselves and the world in which we live. Stories are the oldest form of communication. And so sometimes people say, oh, Reza, you do, you do different things. Like, you know, you, you, you're an academic, but you also uh, write screenplays and you produce TV and you're a professor and all this. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not, all, I'm not a lot of things. I'm one thing. I'm a storyteller. But I am smart enough to understand that there are multiple ways of selling, you know, stories, uh, of creating an industry of stories. And now my particular field happens to be, you know, the greater Middle East, the sort of massive mosaic of cultures and countries and religions and ethnicities and peoples that I happen to be an expert on when it comes to the the, the culture, politics, history, uh, narratives, religions, and all that stuff. And so, I sometimes just jokingly think of myself as a as kind of the, a twenty first century um, oil explorer. You know, throughout the twentieth century, the only reason people went to that region was to just extract oil from the ground. And what I'm saying is that there is a much more lucrative, much more valuable resource in that region that you can extract, and it's stories. That is, after all, the cradle of storytelling. It's where, it's where the concept of story was born, was in this region. And so I made a conscious decision about 15 years ago now, maybe even a little bit longer, to be sort of the clearinghouse for all of these incredible stories. So what if you're someone, if you're a, a studio or a producer or a writer who wants to tell one of these stories, you can't tell it without me. If you know you have a film project in mind, you gotta you gotta help get me to help you do it. And I did that very slowly through my company Boom Gen, which we call ourselves a storytelling factory. You know, technically we're sort of a production company, but we're really a storytelling factory. Um, and made myself absolutely indispensable to Disney and to New Line and to, you know, NBC or what have you, until people sort of got to know who I am and what I do. And then I began to develop the stories myself internally, start producing, writing, creating these shows, you know, uh, myself. But I've always said to myself, this is something that my wife and I talk about all the time. My wife is a very prominent entrepreneur, unlike me. I just kind of slept into this thing. My wife, Jessica Jackley, who, among other things, created Kiva.org. Um, one thing that we always say is don't have a job 
have a mission. Don't have a job. Have a mission. If you pursue a mission, people will eventually pay you for it. <laughs> you know, there are all kinds of avenues for that mission to turn into employment. But if you pursue a job, that's all you have. My mission is to use stories to break down the walls that separate us into different groups, different cultures, different religions, different ethnicities, different nationalities, different races, to make sure that stories the, the, because they hit us where we are as, as human beings, that stories are the things that bind us together. And I've just been lucky that people have paid me to write those things or produce those things or you know, sometimes act in those things or whatever the case may be. When I think about this, it, is, it makes tons of sense. And I actually had r- written in my notes, like the common thread in what you do is storytelling. Because as I spend some time on all these various websites and looking at the work you've done, it is... First of all, what you're, I mean, there's, there's a lot in there and we'll get into it more deeply in a minute. But what I do wonder is, okay, great. The storytelling is the creative part of the business. But having spent a little time investigating Hollywood, <laughs> you know, there is, first of all, it's like no other business in the world. I mean, it's insane. It's so insane. But you need all these other, the story isn't enough. It's like, there's all this other stuff. So how did you get I, was it was it people? Was it learning? Like, how did you get all the other things you needed to be able to succeed? I think, regardless of what industry you're in, you cannot succeed unless you bring partners to the table and then give them the responsibility and the independence and freedom to do the shit that you can't do. <laughs> you know, just recognize that I don't know anything about this business. I don't know how you finance a film. I mean, that's as opaque to me as, you know, uh, flying a rocket to the moon. Those two things are pretty much equally opaque to me. Um, But I know someone who does. And giving that person the independence, the freedom, you know, as a true partner to do what they do best so that I could focus on what I do best is I think the key to uh, success. And, you know, obviously you learn, you pick things up. I think, you know, 10, 15 years into this business, you know, I can at least speak the language of Hollywood, but it's still really, really confusing to me because you're absolutely right. This business makes (laughs) no sense at all. When you just like, when you make a hundred million dollar movie and then you're like, you know what? We're just going to delete it. Why? We just feel like the tax losses is better, I guess. Uh, You know, who makes decisions like that? Who who makes decisions financial? Name another industry in which you could just throw away a hundred million dollars and not think twice about it. You know, Uh, it's a it's a weird business. It's got its own strange rules, and thankfully. Uh, I have a partner who understands those rules way better than I do, so I can focus on what I do best, which is telling stories. One of the things I think is interesting beyond that is that you are focused. So it's, this is a grand irony, right? You have this huge region when you talk about the Middle East that is has so much rich culture, and I've been lucky that I've been able to go almost anywhere. I'm trying to get to Iran, so if you can help me with that, would appreciate. But almost everywhere else, and yet in the states you have these two, it's kind of like you have these two archetypes of a person from the Middle East. It's either Aladdin or a terrorist, which is, I, I hate <laughs> right. to simplify it like that, yeah. and I hope it's not offensive to people, right. but like, it is true. Like every time there's a show, if you look at like the IMDB of a prominent 
actor from the region, there's two types of roles for that person. And so telling stories that are way more nuanced that because uh, representation matters. I mean, everybody says that, but no, like, obviously, right. So when I think about that, I'm like, in some ways you have the easiest job in the world because the low hanging fruit is everywhere. But in another way, the system wants two stories there and you're trying to break past that. So like, how have you, what's the secret to doing that to actually be able to tell those stories, the ones you want to tell? You know, I'm really glad you asked this question because I, I really want to answer this in detail because mm -hmm. it's not just important about my specific focus, but I think anyone who is, who is trying to do something in this industry, uh, this is very instructive for them. When we started, there was nothing. There was nothing. If you were brown, you know, you were a bit part, uh, mostly, yes, you were a terrorist. Or worse, you were the good Muslim. And the good Muslim, as you know, Patrick, never makes it past Act One. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The good Muslim ends up dying sometime around, you know, Act One. Uh, After delivering was... <laughs> dates and some coffee to somebody. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and then, and that's kind of the world that we were in. And so what we realized very, very quickly was you're never going to get brown people in front of the screen until you get brown people behind the screen. Okay. Right. You have to be the gatekeepers. You have to be the decision makers. You have to be the writers, the producers, the directors, the creators, because the creators in this industry have so much power. Right. Even more so now than we first started. Nowadays, all the power is in the hands of the, the, the creators. So if all the creators are white men, then why are we all confused that all the shows have as their protagonists white men? Well, duh, of course they do. Until you start getting black and brown men and women creating stuff, you're not going to get black and brown men and women uh, uh, starring in stuff. And so that was our first real aha moment was let's start developing films, television shows, both scripted and unscripted, uh, that are created by people who look like us. And so therefore they will lead to uh, stars who look like us. Then the second thing that we did, and this was also very important because, you know, one thing that you need to understand about Hollywood is that it's not liberal or conservative. It's not left or right. It is about money and nothing else. Yeah. If if you think you could make money uh, with a show about a guy juggling cats for 30 minutes, that's what the show will be. They There is no bias in Hollywood except towards money. That's all that matters. And so we would show up to a lot of these pitches and these meetings, not with just a great idea for a show. Hey, we got a great idea for a show. You're going to love this. We would show up with stats about the intended audience. The fact of the matter is that, at least when it comes to Muslim households in the United States, the median income for a Muslim household in America dwarfs that of a non-Muslim household. Middle Easterners are by far the wealthiest immigrant community in the United States. Uh, there was a JWT report that came out. It's been, it's been some time since that report has come out. We, don't, we haven't needed to pull it out lately because we don't need to convince anyone anymore. But the JWP said that the buying power of Americans of Middle 
East descent, the total buying power is about a trillion dollars. So like that you show up with these stats and there isn't a conversation about, well, I don't know. Do I really want a brown guy on television? Who's going to watch that? Well, here's who's going to watch that. And by the way, now, like, you know, every Coke commercial has, you know, some Muslim guy in it, right? Every AT&T commercial has some Muslim girl in it because these massive brands now understand the buying power of this group. This is, by the way, a very similar thing happened with the LGBT community um, and also with African-American community. There are so many, there's so much data now out that says the more diverse your cast is, the greater purchasing power uh, you have, you know, as, as an industry. And so show up, show up with the numbers, bring your math, bring your data sets, um, and start from behind the scenes, right? The people behind the scenes uh, have to look like the people that you want in front of the scenes. And that's how we went from trying to get anyone to pay any attention to us when we started in 2006 to Thursday night, CBS, 8.30, primetime Muslim protagonist TV show. FOMO. FOMO. One thing we talk about in the show all the time, and I'm sure you're aware of this too, is when we look at the stats around venture capital, and you see the horrendously low numbers for female founders, it's like one and a half percent for founders of color. And then you scratch your head. And then I just encourage anybody who's scratching their head, just go to the websites of the top 25 VCs and look at the folks who are on the investment committee. And, you know, everybody and, you know, I hate to stereotype, <laughs> but it's so easy. It's like everybody's name is Bucks. They went to Dartmouth. <laughs> and, you know, and there's just... They're all wearing Dockers. And what they're really doing, by the way, is missing out on all the opportunities they'll never see because they're wearing blinders like a horse in a race. And, you know, you you just, when you open your, open your blinders, you take them off and you get the data, then the market is yours. You just own the whole thing. Absolutely. And especially now, and especially with the entertainment industry, because for better or worse, there are just so many distribution outlets, so many networks, so many streamers, so much content out there, so much mm. content that it's, you know, it's become very important for that content to be able to make some noise, to sort of walk in with some kind of audience already embedded. And, and you know, it, that's really, I think, the, the key to all this is that it used to be the case that, you know, you would, you would talk about, you know, uh, pitching a television show and, and the exec would say, how many people could I get to watch this? And now you pitch a television show and the question is, what kind of people mm. am I going to get to watch this? You know, and that's a it's a different uh, landscape. It, it's there's still a lot of problems. There's still a lot of obstacles. It's still very, very difficult. But you no longer need. I, re, I remember we had a we had a, a, a big biblical drama, massive, huge budget biblical drama called of Kings and Prophets uh, about uh, I'm going to say about nine years ago, eight years ago that uh, premiered on ABC. It was the most expensive television show ABC had ever done. Um, and they canceled it after two episodes uh, because they were only getting about, you know, five, six million viewers 
a night. This was eight years ago, five, six million uh, viewers a, a night. And so they ate the hundred million dollars. Again, crazy industry. They ate the hundred million dollars. Um, when we asked them, hey, you know, you guys own Hulu at the time. You know, you, why don't you just, you already bought 10 episodes. You made 10 episodes. <laughs> you know, it's in the can. So why not just put them all on Hulu and let people watch it? And the answer we got was, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. What if it's successful? What if it's popular? Uh, we would rather swallow $100 million than get fired for canceling something that's possibly, you know, successful later on. That's that's how this industry works. But anyway, canceled because we had between five and six million for the first couple of episodes. Five or six million today is a massive hit. That is reason to like pop the champagne <laughs> and and have a party. Um, and that's eight years later. Uh, that's how much the industry has changed. You know, there are shows that get enormous accolades and get, you know, repeated, repeated uh, uh, seasons. Um, I think of, uh, uh, you know, the show Rami on, on Hulu. Love Great Rami. friend of mine, Rami, brilliant show. Uh, uh, deserving of all the accolades that it received. You know, about 700,000 people watch Rami. Wow. You know what? That then uh, He has no excuse. I DM'd Rami, and he doesn't even have that many followers, and I didn't get a response. So when you talk to him, tell Damn him it, to Rami. check his... Because right. I was just like, what you're doing is so amazing. <laughs> now, you mentioned canceling, and I do want to bring up... I hate the cancel the word... Can I hate any discussion <laughs> around canceling, but it's just an easy... You just set me up, Reza. I so know, I know. You had some tweets in 2017 about the former president that, you know, had a profanity in them and it cost you a show on CNN and it was yep. like a, a public thing. And I remember when it happened and that was still when I guess people had an ability to be out, uh, to be outraged about anything. But I'm curious, you know, that's 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 a painful experience. And I'm sure you, you took away some some something from it. Like, what did you what did you learn? What, what, what would you tell us you've learned and what we should learn from that experience ourselves? <sighs> wow. OK, I'm going to I'm going to actually be honest. Mm -hmm. in a Love way that. that I haven't been when talking about this uh, situation. Yeah, uh, in June of 2017, there was a terror attack in London. Um, a, a guy drove his van, uh, ran over people um, on a bridge on the Thames. And while uh, the British were still fishing bodies out of the Thames, the president of the United States tweeted that this is why we need the Muslim ban in America. And I tweeted back that he was a piece of shit. Now, the thing that's remarkable about this is that, okay, sure, the right went bananas. I get it. The right went absolutely bananas. But so did the left. The thing that I think was most shocking to me is the way that, at that time anyway, liberals, progressives, you know, independents, people in the middle of the road... Uh, lambasted me because their argument was, "Hey, you know, you have to, you have to um, respect the office." Remember that? Remember that phrase? Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> you have to, mm -hmm. you have to respect the office of president, no matter who's in that office. I mean, seriously, do we? Anyone who says that now will just get instantly punched in the face. Uh, but back then, that was still. A thing, it's funny, I had the president of MSNBC tell me that if I had only waited like six more weeks until after Charlottesville and then called him a piece of shit, 
nothing would have happened. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I'm an innovator. What can I say? Um, the, the thing that I think was remarkable about that is that I felt overwhelmed by the negativity that hit me right away. And that negativity, plus, and I've documented this uh, a few times, plus uh, the lies that I was told by Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN at the time, who, after canceling the show, told me in no uncertain terms that if I just kept quiet, if I didn't you know, do any interviews or make a big deal about this firing, if I just laid low, that when the whole thing blew over, he would give me the show back, the show that I had spent my entire career, uh, you know, uh, getting to, uh, and that, you know, the 20, my 20 employees on the show would all get paid. Everything would be fine. Nothing to worry about. Just keep your head down and shut up. Don't say anything to anyone until this thing dies down. Jeff Zucker obviously was lying uh, and gave me nothing and then required months and months of legal wrangling just to get the show back. Here's what I, here's what I learned from that moment is that I should not have remained silent. I should not have been cowed. I 100% believed that the president of the United States was a piece of shit in June. I think he's much worse now. And I should have told Zucker to go screw himself. And I should have abandoned whatever, any hope I had of having that show back uh, in exchange for becoming a voice for those people who from a very early moment realized that this man was a threat to the world, not just to American democracy, but to the world. And someone needed to start shouting that as loudly as they could. This was a time in which the house was on fire and nobody was screaming fire. And I took the advice of my agent, who's no longer my agent, and my publicist, who's no longer my publicist, and kept my mouth shut instead of doing what every fiber in my being knew I should have done, which was double down on this. So what did I learn from that? I learned that I should just take advice from myself and not the people who are financially uh, positioned uh, to keep me quiet, uh, which is what my agent and my publicist at the time, uh, you know, were doing. FOMO. FOMO. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a hard lesson to learn. And by the way, like I think anybody who's in your shoes would most people would would take the exact same route. I know I probably would because it is so hard and especially it comes at you fast. It's not like you were able to sit down and dispassionately like, let me just <laughs> let me think this through like, hmm, like, let, OK, no. where's the decision tree? Like, let's sketch that out. I mean, no, it I, is, I, had armed crazy. Guards. I had armed guards following me to the grocery store. I had no. like undercover policemen sitting in my classrooms. Um, you know, I had very, very specific death threats towards my children by name, you know, talking about exactly how they were going to die. Uh, you know, so yeah, it was, it, 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 I got cowed. I got cowed into silence. And you're right. You know, if, if I were to live that moment again, I probably would have made the same decision. But looking back on it in hindsight, um, I think I made a mistake, and I I should have I should have just said nope. This is who I am. This is what I said. I am not going to apologize for it. It just makes you realize, and I think that's like when I 
think about these kinds of things. I think about the people who, who you know, like the, the Malalas of the world, right? And, and what she has gone through. And it's sort of like what that takes. It is, yeah. it is an uncommon characteristic. And by the way, Malala, I, I was able to spend some time with her this year. She beat me in a game of whack-a-mole. So not just <laughs> courageous, but very dexterous. Yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> now, Reza, I do want to talk about your new book. It's out. It's called An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. I mean, epic title, first of all. Like, it's it's like that that book that sounds like I'm a, a fan of books like The Great Game. And I just can already see that this is, you know, I, I'm waiting for my copy right now. Um, talk about the book and what we can find between the covers and, and you know, give us generate a little FOMO for us. <laughs> This is a story that I always knew as a child growing up in Iran. In fact, in many ways, sort of my generation is kind of the last generation who grew up hearing the story of Howard Baskerville. Howard Baskerville was a 22-year-old missionary from Nebraska who, in 1907, reluctantly <laughs> went to Iran, back then known as Persia, in order to teach English and preach the gospel. Uh, he really wanted to go to China and Japan. Uh, he had read all these great things about how wonderful Japan and how beautiful Japan is and how, how the, the mission in China was just thriving and people were converting en masse. He had also read a lot of missionary dispatches from Persia saying, this is the worst place on earth. These people are all a bunch of liars, Mohammedanism, is a is a wall that cannot be moved. Uh, my favorite my favorite quote is by by a missionary who wrote, "Every sin in the Decalogue is ever present in Persia, and add to those the most abominable sin of Sodom." So wow. <laughs> he reads all this stuff. <laughs> he applies to go to China or Japan. Gets placed in Persia, but you know if you're a missionary. What choice do you have? You go where the where the you know where the gospel calls you. So this 22-year-old kid from Nebraska ends up going to Persia in 1907, and he arrives, unbeknownst to him, in the middle of a massive revolution. This will be known in history as the Constitutional Revolution. A year before he arrived, a group of young, educated uh, Iranians, together with the merchant class and the clergy, had, through a series of protests um, and boycotts, forced the Shah of Iran, the king of Iran, to allow for the writing of a constitution, this incredibly modern document that outlined the rights and privileges and freedoms for all individuals, equality of all people, equality of all religions, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. I mean, just a, a remarkable document. And along with that, the creation of a parliament. Iran in 1906 became the first constitutional monarchy in the entire Middle East. Unfortunately, three days after that Shah signed the constitution, he died. And his son, who is this kind of absolutely comically villainous character named Muhammad Ali, uh, comes to power and almost immediately begins to deconstruct his father's work. He tears up the constitution uh, and he rolls his Russian cannons uh, to the parliament building and he destroys the building with the parliamentarian still inside. That's when Baskerville suddenly shows up. So he 
shows up in the midst of this revolution. He is told to sort of stay out of it, mind his own business, put his head down. He's here to teach English, to, to preach the gospel. That's what he's there for. He's living in a tiny town called Tabriz in the Northwest, which also happens to become the, the center, the, the sort of the main center of the revolution. And for a year and a half, this is what he does in the midst of this devastating civil war that's going on around him. And then through a series of really remarkable um, uh, events that happen, he slowly, slowly begins to change until he simply cannot remain silent anymore in the face of the suffering that is taking place around him. And he basically, he quits his mission. He stands before his students and says, I can't do this anymore. I can't just bear to watch the suffering on the streets and stay silent. I need to go and help, um, you know, these revolutionaries fight for their rights. Uh, and then in the, one of the most remarkable moments, you know, that's almost hard to believe, like straight out of, uh, um, you know, the movies, his students go with him. His students also quit the school and follow him into uh, the revolution. They create themselves into a militia. Um, and he, when told by the American government, this is not your business, time to come home, or we will arrest you for treason. <laughs> That's actually the word that they use. Treason gives up his American citizenship and says that as a Christian, as an American, as a follower of Jesus, I have to do this. I have to fight for these people who are fighting for their most basic rights. Um, and then, you know, he he fights in this revolution, dies a very he heroic death. Um, the revolution does end up succeeding. Uh, they remove the Shah from the throne. They re rewrite the constitution, rebuild parliament. And the very first act of parliament is to declare Howard Baskerville, this young American Christian missionary uh, a martyr and hero of the cause. His tomb is still in Tabriz. People still visit it. There's a golden bust of him in a museum in Tabriz. When I was a kid in Iran, there were elementary schools named Howard Baskerville Elementary. Now, since the 79 revolution, his name as an American, not a lot of love for Americans in the Iranian government, uh, has been pretty much wiped from the history books. Very few Iranians nowadays know who Howard Baskerville is, but no American has ever heard of this kid. I, I mean, it's it, I find that remarkable. And this is the first biography ever written about him. And, and, you know, it's my goal to make sure that his name sort of enters sort of the pantheon of these sort of great Americans, you know. And, you know, maybe it's a bit much to ask, but I also think that in many ways, Howard Baskerville can serve as a kind of bridge between Iranians and Americans who have undergone some four decades of, you know, animosity and, and, uh, and hatred. And perhaps in a way, you know, this, this uh, American whom Iranians still consider to be a hero, they call him uh, uh, Iran's Lafayette, you know, the, Iran's Marquis de Lafayette, um, that his memory can kind of reemerge and reinvigorate, you know, relations between these two countries at a time in which we are trying to renegotiate the nuclear accords, trying to figure out some way to, to rebuild um, you know, that, that relationship between the U.S. and Iran. All right. The book is An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Now, if you want to find out more about Reza, 
head over to his website. It's RezaAslan.com. You can find him on Twitter at RezaAslan, also on Instagram at RezaAslan, and he's on TikTok at the RezaAslan. I'm joining TikTok, you guys. <laughs> Boom. Uh, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO. 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 FOMO.